significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. This is Season 2, and you're on Episode 29, The Color Line, Part 8. Last time, we talked about how the deaths of James Howard, and especially Lucy Byard, along with the tone-deaf response by the General Conference leadership, and the lack of any, you know, real change— led to a growing determination to see racial progress in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We also talked about the two strategies in the Black Adventist community for dealing with the color line. Option number one, we either wait for equality and live with the color line for now, or two, we fight for equality right now. In this episode, I want to talk a little bit more about what fighting for equality looked like, and that starts with Oakwood College. Oakwood was founded in 1896 in the beginning of a long season of college planting that Adventists did around the year. I mean, it really, it saw throughout the 1890s an Adventist college being founded almost every single year somewhere from Southern Adventist University in Southwestern to Helderberg College in South Africa in 1893, to Salusi in Zimbabwe in 1895, to Oakwood in 1896, and on and on and on and on it went. Now, the idea was to plant these colleges regionally so that people everywhere would have easy access to Adventist higher education. Of course, if they were anything like me, then uh, then they traveled to the college furthest away from their home. But, uh, but travel wasn't easy back then, okay? Proximity was important, so planting a college that was reasonably close to everybody was important. Now, Oakwood was different than all these other colleges because it was meant for black people who lived in the South. The first students had it hard. Following the industrial education model championed by both Ellen White and Booker T. Washington, the students worked as bakers, as weavers, as blacksmiths, as farmers, and just a host of other jobs. It was hard on the faculty, too. Oakwood burned through two principals in its first three years. The General Conference President, G.A. Irwin, said that he regretted that he couldn't report better progress at Oakwood. The black folk in the South were just too poor to afford it, and the church was unwilling to subsidize Oakwood to compensate for that. There was talk that the school would have to be closed down as early as 1904, just after eight years of operation. Oakwood limped on as this hybrid training school, providing a high school-level education with an equal emphasis on practical skill training. It wasn't until 1917 that it was promoted to a junior college, essentially allowing students to get an associate's degree before they transferred somewhere else to complete their bachelor's if that's what they wanted to do. Now, this was a big deal because so long as Oakwood was basically a high school where you worked all day, It would only ever appeal to former slaves and their children who needed to catch up on their education and skills to have a great job in life. The moment it became a junior college, well, black Adventists from around the country would find it appealing because, really, what other Adventist college are they going to attend? So, two years of college is better than no years of college, my friend. Now, this didn't mean that you were going to get an associate's degree in chemistry, because most of the time it meant you were training to be a pastor or a teacher, huh? Now, the problem, of course, was that Oakwood was still run by white people, so it took all of one year, 
since becoming a college for Elsie Graves, a student, to announce a student strike. Two years after that, all of the students banded together for another strike after the school tried to expel one of their few students. Student strikes were not unique to Oakwood in these days, but actually fairly common as growing student bodies across the country felt they were unheard by old school administrators. And it would be another decade in 1931 when the students would finally be heard. When Arna Bontomps left the Harlem Renaissance and arrived on campus to teach, he noted, quote, this is perhaps the world's worst school. No buildings, few teachers, no vision, and no learning, end quote. The students at Oakwood agreed. They had several clear demands. First, why the heck are we practicing segregation at chapel at a black school? White and black people were even banned from washing each other's feet during communion, which, you know, kind of undermines the whole ceremony. Second, the academics weren't very good. Third, the emphasis on developing, you know, farming and mechanic skills and all that interfered with their academics. The idea had been that Oakwood would be financially self-sufficient in a way no other Adventist school was, so students had to work long, long hours, and, you know, an intellectual education felt secondary. Fourth, the school still needed black leadership. Fifth, of the few black teachers they had, the white teachers still made more money. Sixth, black students felt prejudiced from their white teachers. Seventh, they wanted more career options than becoming a pastor or a teacher. So with these demands in hand, the students organized. They waited until October 8th when the college board was supposed to meet. At breakfast, the student's leader rang a bell, proclaimed that the students are now on strike. They wrote a letter to the general conference president explaining their grievances. Barricades were erected like they were revolutionaries on the streets of Paris a hundred years earlier. The students made 30 copies of their demands and sent them to church leaders, saying simply, quote, We are tired of the lying. This school is going contrary to its purpose. It is driving young people away from God instead of driving them nearer to him, end quote. In other words, they were tired of the unkept promises the church made to black people. Now, the General Conference, of course, was not amused by this letter. They didn't like being dictated to by students, and they let Oakwood's president know it. Frank Peterson, head of the church's Negro department, didn't like it either. Remember that Frank wanted to wait for change, to not rock the boat, to play the cards you're dealt. And he told the students that, quote, you have done a very unwise thing and that heaven is not pleased with your acts, end quote. The student board at last agreed to meet with the students and actually gave in to many of their demands. The General Conference Committee decided that black leaders from the North should have a voice in how Oakwood was run, which was precisely what the students were asking for. And as for the college's president and having black leadership at the college, well, the General Conference decided to choose a white person, Leon Cobb from Pacific Union College, but Leon Cobb declined. Next, they invited another white man who also declined the honor. And finally, reluctantly as their third choice, the General Conference selected James Moran as the first black president of Oakwood. Three years later, the first black pastor of the Oakwood University Church came as well. It had taken nearly 40 years to have a black pastor and a black president on the campus of Oakwood. For good measure, five of the student ringleaders were also expelled on the same day that the old president was asked to resign. 
Arna Bontomps, who was teaching at Oakwood at the time of the strike, knew that the writing was on the wall for him as well because he was perceived as being sympathetic to the strikers. He would later write to a friend, quote, in race relations, Avenus are retarded, end quote. I'm telling you this story at length because it's not a well-known story in Adventism. If you look up Oakwood University in the new Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists, you won't find this story. You're going to find a lot of excruciating detail about every single person, it seems, who ever worked or set foot on Oakwood's campus. I mean, it is a it is a remarkably thorough article in terms of making sure names get mentioned that need to get mentioned, but nothing on this strike. And if you read the General Conference Committee minutes from this time period, well, they're not going to mention it either. They're not going to give credit to the students for their decision to change presidents at Oakwood or their decision to put black leaders from the North uh, and, and, and put them on the board at Oakwood either. You would just, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the General Conference Committee, just out of their own wisdom, decided to make these changes. Now, if you were a particular kind of young Avenist living in those days, you would have seen that fighting the church for the good of the church can work. Perhaps, perhaps it's the only way to get change, right? Like how, how do you resist that conclusion? You're watching these things. Maybe you're on the sidelines and you real and you see the church cave. You see the administration cave, the board of trustees cave to some of these demands of these students, these poor students on the campus of Oakwood. And you think to yourself, is this how we're going to get equality as a people? Do we have to fight the church to get it? Maybe waiting patiently isn't the way to go, right? So you have these ideas among young Avenists, and they're, they're percolating. They've been planted after this protest. Because once you've gotten changed this way once, why not try it again? So while Lucy Byard lay dying in the Freedmen's Hospital in the autumn of 1943, a group of black Adventists met together to turn their outrage into action. They called themselves the Committee for the Advancement of the Worldwide Work Among Colored Seventh-day Adventists. But uh, we're just going to call them the committee. They constituted a who's who of black Adventism, included Ellen A. Anderson, who 12 years earlier had been expelled from Oakwood for leading the student strike. The committee secured a promise from McElhaney, the General Conference president, to meet with him on Sunday, October 17th. Now, this was a big, a big grab, a big meeting. The fact that the General Conference president agreed to meet with this committee of lay people was a big deal. So one of the committee members, Valerie Justice Vance, who was called, quote, one of the brainiest black students produced by Howard University. She, she took the lead. She worked all night before the meeting, making calls, writing letters, and helping to shape exactly what the committee was going to ask the general conference president for. Now, the meeting with McElhaney went well. So did the next one a few weeks later. McElhaney had announced at the Autumn Council of the General Conference Committee that these issues need to be explored more thoroughly. Now, that meant that, meant that the showdown, that the conversation would take place just prior to the spring meeting in 1944. They were going to have two days before the spring meeting happened, to make their case and decide the future of the work among black Seventh-day Adventists. The site for that meeting would be the Stevens Hotel, which is now the Hilton Chicago. At the time, the largest 
hotel in the world with some 3,000 rooms. Every U.S. president has been to this hotel since it was built in 1927. It would also be the site of the famous Democratic National Convention in 1968 that brought thousands of protests to Chicago who they clashed with police and there was a big trial that was, you know, they had a movie made about it and all that kind of stuff. And I guess what I'm saying is this hotel has some serious history and Avenus would make history there as well. Now, the committee still felt they needed to hold McElhaney's feet to the fire. They had been disappointed before. They knew how these things can go when dealing with bureaucrats of any type. Some of these committee members worked for the U.S. government. Okay, they, they knew how this goes. You can secure a promise on one day, but unless you kind of keep reminding them of that, unless you kind of keep pushing them for details and updates and these sort of things, this thing can get away from you. Promises can be forgotten. Details can be changed without you knowing, right? You can't just wait six months and say, hey, is that thing still on? So the committee would be writing to McElhaney every single month, asking them questions about, hey, what, what exactly is going to be planned? Who exactly is going to be there? We think some more people need to be there. What's the agenda for this meeting? On and on and on, kind of pressing him for details, making sure those plans were still good month after month after month. Now, McElhaney politely brushed them off with the attitude that, hey, hey, lay people, this is the general conference's business now, okay? So thanks for bringing it to our attention, and goodbye. We'll handle it. Committee, after all, right? They were just they were just lay people. They had no power. But one black doctor, Stark Cherry, had a plan. He reasoned with McElhaney that, you know, it might not be a bad idea to appoint some lay people to this meeting so that, you know, they don't have to receive this information secondhand later on, right? Hint, hint, hint. More witnesses is a good thing, right? You wouldn't want the, the news to be reported later on of what happened in this meeting and Maybe some details are misremembered. McElhaney got the point. The committee showed up in Chicago with a pamphlet they called Shall the Four Freedoms Function Among Seventh-day Adventists? Now, this title was a nod to uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Four Freedoms speech that he had given a few years earlier, where he called for the freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, freedom from fear. Now, to FDR... Those freedoms summarized the case that he was trying to make, that all allied nations were trying to make against that of the Axis powers in World War II. Now, the committee, that doesn't mean the committee saw the, the Avenus race relations situation in the same terms as a war between freedom-loving people and Nazis, necessarily. But their Four Freedoms pamphlet didn't pull punches. They immediately made it clear Quoting Ellen White, I mean, they quoted Ellen White all throughout this document, that the church's racial policy brought the entire denomination into sin. What's more, they called the policy unchristlike for not allowing black people into Adventist schools and hospitals. And yes, yes, they cited the Lucy Byard case, among other cases of discrimination that had taken place in the church. The duty of white Adventists, this document read, was first to repair as far as is in their power past injury done to the colored people. And they had an Ellen White quote for that. Second, white people needed to show an exact and impartial justice to the Negro race. Had an Ellen White reference for that. Third, to increase the force of colored workers. Had an Ellen White quote for that. And fourth, to throw their influence against the customs and practices of the world. And guess what? 
They had an Ellen White quote for that one, too. It also cited the names and places that would allow black professors without discrimination, in contrast to Adventist schools, places like the City College of New York or Harvard or the University of Chicago, which was then employing five black professors. In a particularly stinging example, okay, of all the examples they could have chosen, you have to believe that this one was chosen on purpose for the rhetorical value it would have in Adventism. And uh, they, they said that the, the, the document also named the Catholic University as a welcoming place for black students. It accuses the General Conference Committee of being disinterested, their word, in black Adventists. And the Four Freedoms document goes on and on and on, carefully and concisely dismantling the church's racial policy on every level. But the one thing it didn't ask for the one thing it didn't call for, the one thing it wasn't agitating for was black conferences because it still held out hope that black Adventists and white Adventists and all kinds of Adventists could be a part of the same church hierarchy, the same organization on a, on a basis of equality. When it was McElhaney's turn to take the floor, he gave the delegates there three options. First, we can maintain the status quo, keep doing what we're doing. Second, we could use the plan that we've been using in the South and just extend that everywhere. Or third, we could organize colored conferences. He asked, quote, should we continue to operate on the status quo? End quote. He was talking about uh, colored conferences here, right? Like one, one of the black members Present asked if there if this was something being forced on the black Adventists, right? Like is when you when you mentioned that we have these three options and then you kind of dismiss the first option, right? Continuing at the status quo and in in hinting that maybe colored conferences is what you want. Is is that really a hint or are you telling us what's gonna happen? You know, do we even have a voice in the matter? Why are we called here? McElhaney was quick to say, Whoa, 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 whoa. It's just an option. We're not forcing it on anybody. General Conference did not come here with the decision already made. But you could tell what McElhaney preferred. Still, the discussion went freely. One black pastor said that he, he liked the status quo if it meant being part of the same conference system. Quote, we don't want colored conferences. End quote. He made a motion to maintain the status quo, and it was seconded. Then the debate began over exactly what the status quo meant. One pastor smelled a rat. Some black people want colored conferences so they can have power, he said. And some white church leaders want colored conferences so they can get rid of us, he said. Another black minister disagreed. Colored conferences would enable black Adventists to take greater control of their own destiny, he argued. William Spicy Spicer was in favor of colored conferences, as were other union and conference leaders whose support in this matter was crucial because the general conference, as we've seen before, could decide whatever they want. But these conferences would have to be a part of whatever union uh, whose territory they were in, right? So if the union president didn't go for it, general conference can decide all they want. But the unions would find some way to frustrate the plan. So they needed their support. Now, this whole conversation from, from McElhaney on down must have felt very strange to folks because, 
I mean, hadn't black leaders been told after 1930 to never bring up this idea of colored conferences again? And they hadn't brought it up. They didn't come here with that idea. White church leaders brought it up, and they, and they were pushing it. They were advocating it themselves, this thing that they were told never to bring up again. Now, at a crucial moment in the discussion, as there was suspicion going around the room, as Black Avenists were debating among themselves the motion that was on the floor to maintain the status quo, McElhaney had returned to his room, apparently not feeling very well. G.E. Peters, the color department leader, told the song leader, hey, sing a, sing a few extra songs, and, and he raced to McElhaney's room. The delegates in the rooftop ballroom were debating, you know, right, whether to uphold that status quo, but, right, you know, we're singing now, we're just going to take a few moments to sing, and, and Peters knew that this meeting was standing on the edge of a knife. If one person on either side said something insensitive or something that could be construed as disloyal or indifferent, oh, man, every expectation of progress and hope that had been built up over the last six months in the wake of Lucy Byard's hospitalization would be lost. The consequences could be disastrous because there was... There was, by this point, real anger in the Black Avenist community. Real and abiding and enduring anger. Peters told McElhaney in his room uh, as he laid in his bed not feeling well, he says, look, if this thing falls apart, you, McElhaney, will lose all credibility in Black Adventism. And Peters said, so will I because he felt the, the immense pressure from angry constituents to deliver for them and deliver big. If you feel that strongly, McElhaney told Peters, then, ill as I am, I'll chair that meeting. So Peters and McElhaney rejoined the discussion after the music was over, and in their own deft, skillful ways, they plowed forward. Peters dismantled the idea that some black Adventists just wanted power. That's why they wanted colored conferences. McElhaney dismantled the idea that black people were incapable of running a conference. That wasn't something that was spoken out loud, but it was something he, he obviously knew that some folks were thinking. Now, slowly the room came around to the idea of colored conferences, not out of a sense of idealism, but out of a sense that we've been trying the status quo and it hasn't really worked out for us. So, you know, let's try this. There was also this fear of walking away with nothing. So colored conferences it was. When Spring Council met the next day, a report lay before them from the, from the previous two days' meeting. It was recommended that colored conferences be set up, that the editor of Message Magazine be black, that a school and a sanitarium be planted in the north, and so on. Now, not all of these votes bore fruit. They didn't all meet the expectations behind their intention no desegregation would be required of the Washington Sanitarium or any Avenist property for that matter, but at least black Avenists would have a greater degree of freedom in charting their own destiny. They would be able to handle their own money, elect to their own leaders, deal with their own pastors, and evangelize however they wanted to. The recommendation as voted read, quote, that the 1930 plan on colored organization for the southern states be adopted for all territories in North America, end quote. Who could have expected this even a year ago? 
even a year ago, because of Lucy Byard, because of everyday Black Avenues who organized, because they were united, this got done. McElhaney thanked delegates from the bottom of his heart. I thank you for the privilege of talking to you, he said, adding that he hoped these colored conferences would be established immediately. At first, this began to pay dividends. Secular newspapers who throughout the 1930s had been printing stories about how, how racist and how discriminatory Adventists were began changing their tune a little bit. Some began praising the Adventist church for empowering black people now in a way that other churches hadn't. It almost felt as if Adventists were ahead of the curve as far as how churches related to in, in race relations, but there was still a ton of hard work ahead of them. Black Adventists in Chicago had by no means been unified around this idea, and even, even though they warmed up to it by the end, even though they supported it by the end, they now had to go home and convince their brethren to warm up to it as well and vote for it. In September 1944, nearly six months after the vote in Chicago, the Lake Region Conference was formed, the first one. The Northeastern Conference followed next, which initially left out Ohio and western Pennsylvania, and the believers there wanted to organize, but the Columbia Union officials said, ah, there's not enough financial incentive there to form the, their own conference, and lay people again rose up. Again, they had the right to church leaders. I mean, they basically told the church leaders, hey, look, we didn't ask for colored conferences. We asked for full and equal involvement in the church structure as it is. But obviously that wasn't going to happen, so all we have are colored conferences, and now you're, you're dragging your feet on that too? Eventually, the Columbia Union relented, and other colored conferences began to follow. If any of the white majority of Adventists had managed to pierce the curtain of church politics and learned anything about this proposal for colored conferences, they knew it had been shut down back in 1930, and now the word from on high was that it was, it was coming back. This thing that was never to be brought up again, now it's stamped by the General Conference Committee. Avenus editors explained it to their readers, often without much conviction. M.L. Rice opened for the Atlantic Union Gleaner with these words, quote, In the development of God's work in North America, it appears as if the time has come when a more complete organization should be perfected among our colored believers, end quote. Rice then dutifully explained the Spring Council's vote and the next steps to be followed, but you can sense this, his uncertainty about it when he made comments like, quote, the organizing of our colored churches into a conference will not be without its trials and difficulties, but if God is leading in this matter, then we should all courageously move forward. We are treading an unknown and untried path in this step we are about to take. None of us has gone this way before, end quote. It appears as if the time has come, if God is leading in this matter, we are treading an unknown and untried path. I don't remember people, people having this, this conversation or using this kind of language when the first conferences were organized in 1861. I, mean, I, I seem to recall, memory's a little fuzzy, I seem to recall a little bit more optimism. The president of the Southern Union was more confident in approving of colored conferences, though he felt the need to remind his readers that black Adventists, quote, have stood most loyally by the organized work, end quote. There's that all-important word again, loyalty. A few months later, however, Rice had regained some confidence in this new direction. 
He reassured his members that, quote, the plan to organize our colored conferences. He reassured his members that, quote, the plan to organize our colored churches into a conference is not a studied plan to further separate our colored and white believers. Rather, it is a plan by which our colored churches may more effectively carry on missionary work among the people of their own race, end quote. The Review and other Adventist magazines read differently in the 20th century than they had in the first six decades of the church. I mean, you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to, to find a grumpy James White debating his critics or a young Jones and Wagner sniping at the General Conference president in Signs of the Times in, in the 20th century. If you found an old article by Ellen White, you know, in the 1940s or 50s or 60s, it was usually some reminder or encouragement to stay the course. You didn't find too many people often recipients of the point of Ellen's pen, confessing their sins and repenting publicly in the review in, in the middle of the 20th century. It was all so much more polished now, so much more professional. The tone was consistently and eerily triumphant. Tithe and membership numbers were always going up. God was always blessing. Every worker was described as effective and efficient. Where personal problems were hinted at, they were often glossed over. One union president in an article admitted that he had some challenges and sadly had to let some of his workers go, but it was all with the approval of the pastors and the churches, right? It's okay. Everyone supported it. No hurt feelings. You won't find many instances where a church leader publicly disagrees with another church leader. Now, what this meant was, was that there's a wall that had been erected between leaders and members. The earliest Adventists wrote like, you know, you were in the know, like the, like the review was like a message board that we all kind of posted something on and, and were informed. We all kind of knew what was being talked about. If James White was accused of embezzling or Ellen White was accused of faking her visions, then those things would be dealt with in the review. Maybe you didn't know who was making those claims, but you generally knew what was going on behind the scenes to a large extent. After Ellen White's death, the church had grown so large that you would likely have no clue what was going on behind the scenes. Which is why discovering all of these documents about the 1919 Bible Conference was such a shock. Because the vast majority of members had no idea what the leaders in their day were even thinking. This is why Washburn and Holmes wanted to expose it. They wanted to tear the wall down. But the wall held, and the experience of reading most articles and most Adventist magazines in the 20th century was like staring at a plastic smiling face. It made you feel good. The church is growing. Our missionaries are conquering. Problems are being overcome. Jesus is coming soon. Yay! And a surface reading of all these articles would likely give the impression that things were fine between black and white Adventists. These articles celebrated black colporters alongside white colporters. You would have to read awfully carefully between the lines to even get a glimpse of what was really going on behind the scenes. When one leader says that the colored believers in the South have stood most loyally behind the organized work, what he's really doing is reassuring the white majority that everything's going to be okay. They're on our side. When another leader says that the success of colored conferences depends, quote, upon the cooperation of our colored brethren, end quote, he is telling black Adventists, hey, you wanted this, so you'd better support it. When the leader says that these conferences were not a studied plan to further separate our colored and white believers, he is addressing concerns that Adventists, particularly white Adventists, might have about unity. And notice he says a plan to further separate our white and colored brethren. 
as if it's an acknowledgement that there's already at least some separation in the church. But there's no reason to think that most Adventist readers of these magazines cared about what was happening in the halls of power. So the reason why I bring this up is because you, you hear about this committee and the meeting they held in Chicago and the, and the anger in the black community. And you, once you get the scoop on what's going on here, but then you go back and you read the review in these days or Signs of the Times or something else and you, and you find nothing of it there. You read the official minutes and you find nothing about this stuff there. Everything is clinical. Everything is according to plan. And you're not getting the whole story. There's this wall erected between, between what the, 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 the everyday Adventist, the reader of these records, and, and what's really going on, the real reality in the Adventist church. Like I said, did most Adventists even care what was really going on? Did they care to read between the lines? Probably not. So was this plan for colored conferences ideal? No. Did it solve the race problems in the church? Nope. Did it work? Sure. Writing a few decades later, one of the committee members, Joseph T. Dodson, summed it up by saying that they had gone from segregation without power to segregation with power. And surely that counted for something. The history of black Adventism since that time has been that of fantastic numerical growth and capable management of their own affairs. The worst fears of 1944 were proven to be untrue. But even in this victory, this progress, there's a sense that the can was once again being kicked down the road. Segregation still existed within the church. And the words of Ella White, written half a century before, still echoed. Still echoed that segregation was the plan until the Lord shows us a better way. Black and white Adventists are still waiting for that better way. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.